The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of 1 Samuel, continuing our study of, or excuse me, our study of Judges and our study of Samson, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, putting aside the uh, thoughts about the things that uh, distract us, events in our lives from last night, yesterday, tomorrow, this afternoon, vacation in two weeks, whatever it might be, and focusing our attention on the Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for confession if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come to you as believers in a free nation that does not hinder or restrict our freedom to worship and our freedom to teach accurately your word, that there is no government interference. And Father, we pray that that might continue and that we might continue to have the freedoms, to enjoy the freedoms that we have and that there might indeed as perhaps even be a surge of positive volition in this nation that would cause a reversal that we might turn back to the greater freedoms that we enjoyed at one at an earlier time. That we would not be like the Jews during the time of the judges, continuously deteriorating through endless cycles of apostasy, but that we might come to understand the truth once again in this nation. Father, we pray that as we study our passage this morning, focusing on what you have to teach us through Samson, that we might be able to understand these things and they might encourage us and challenge us and strengthen our souls and our spiritual life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace. The grace of God is one of those subjects that everybody talks about. You can't find a denominational group no matter who they are, whether they're quasi-cultic or whether they are uh, just a pretty close to the Bible, that doesn't talk about grace. People talk about grace all the time. They, we use phrases like, well, such and such will happen by the grace of God. But a lot of that is more lip service than it is reality. It has more to do with Christian verbiage than it does with a substantive understanding of what grace is really all about. I've hardly been to any church, and I remember when I was in seminary, we had to take sort of a survey of ministries type of field education course when I was in my first year. And we had to go visit all the different churches, all the different denominations, all the exacts and spasms that you run into across the denominational spectrum. And I was amazed. Everybody talks about grace. 
Sometimes they even sound good. But when you start looking beneath the surface, you realize how very few people actually understand what the grace of God is all about. Grace means unmerited favor. It means undeserved blessing. Those words unmerited and undeserved are the key words. They mean that we don't do anything, we aren't anything, we can't ever perform any action, do anything, think any thoughts that ever merit God's favor, that ever earn God's blessing, that ever acquire God's approval or approbation. There's absolutely nothing that we can do. The flip side of that means that no matter how bad we are, no matter what horrible sins we might commit, no matter how heinous our activities might be, we can't out the grace of God. Now, some people that say, well, you know, as soon as you say that, you're in trouble because now everybody's going to go out and sin with impunity because you just gave them a license to sin. Well, the grace of God is not a license to sin. It is rather the liberty to, to succeed because our freedom to succeed is related to our freedom to fail. If you don't have freedom to fail then you don't have freedom to succeed. And if you limit one, you automatically limit the other. One of the most difficult things for some people to ever learn is that God really, truly loves them as they are. I think part of that is just because they, people so often today grow up in such horrible homes, horrible situations, that they never, never experience anything close to real love from their parents, from their fathers, from their mothers. And everything that they face is, is conditional. And so when they come to face the love of God, they just extrapolate from human love to divine love, and they never can quite understand that God truly does love them. And for whatever reason, sometimes it's guilt, sometimes they just think they've committed such horrible uh, atrocities in their life, such, such unforgivable sins that, that, well, God can love other people, but God certainly can't love me. And so some act weighs so heavy on that person that, that they can't get past that to understand the, the love of God. And they can't ever quite believe that God loves them as much as He loves everybody else. And this is a real problem for some folks. They just And, and others who have grown up in a denomination where they have had legalism beat into them day in and day out, or they have been taught that you can lose your salvation, that you can commit some unforgivable sin, and you either weren't ever really saved, like the lordship crowd says, or you, you've now lost your salvation, like uh, most Arminians teach. Somehow, they never can understand that God's grace is based on who God is and not on who they are. See, we always forget that God is righteous. God is absolute righteousness, and that means that God is absolute perfection. There is no flaw in God. There is no failure in God. And God is said in the Scriptures to be absolute righteousness. And, and He's said to be light. God is light, First John says, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Because God is light, because God is absolute righteousness... God cannot have a relationship with a creature that is anything less than His absolute standard. God's standard is so high, so far above anything that we can ever imagine in terms of our own experience, that there is no way we can all measure up. It is as if God is on top of uh, Mount Everest with His standard, and the best that any human can do doesn't even reach the level of sea level. It's somewhere down along the, the Dead Sea or uh, uh, the Salt Sea in Israel or somehow in the Mojave Desert or out in California. It's below sea level. I mean, even the best even that, that man can do. We're reminded of the two scriptures. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means every single human being falls into that category of sin and is condemned not because of what they do but because of what Adam did. And that's one of the most important things that we can communicate to people when we are witnessing, when we are interacting with somebody who's struggling with this, is that condemnation was for Adam's original sin, which was imputed to an inherited sin nature, and condemnation is not because you did something. 
God rejected you not because you did something. God rejected you because you're obnoxious to Him, because you possess uh, Adam's original sin, and you were born with a sin nature under condemnation. God, therefore, loves us not because of who we are, but because of who He is. He loves us not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The problem is, I think, that a lot of people are just over-impressed with their own sin. They just think that somehow they did something so awful, so horrible, it really impressed them with its heinousness, that God must be shocked because they're shocked. God must be horrified because they're horrified. All that really means is that they're impressed with their own depravity, but God's not impressed with our depravity because God knows how depraved you are. Every single one of us is totally depraved. Sin infects every single aspect of our thinking and our character and our person, and it's only after regeneration that there's any change. But it still doesn't do away with the sin nature, diminish the sin nature, decrease the sin nature, or in any way hinder the sin nature. It simply means it's salvation that sin nature no longer has absolute power. So all our sin falls short of the glory of God. And secondly, Isaiah says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now, most people hear that. What they really hear, think about it. What you hear, when you hear that so often, is all our unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags. Somehow, between the time we read that and the time it gets into our thinking, we've sort of changed it. It's not all all our righteousnesses. It's all our unrighteousnesses. But that's not what the text says. The text says it's all our un, um, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's the best that we are. Everything that we do, everything that we're impressed with, that we think somehow is going to impress God, God says that's filthy rags. Grace means that God is faithful to His character. And He is faithful to His promises, no matter what the creature does. He's promised to save you because of what Christ did on the cross, not because of anything that you or I ever did. So if we come along and commit some horrible sin, we don't lose our salvation, and we don't surprise God with some new failing. Remember, God is omniscient, and He has known from eternity past, billions and billions of years ago, He knew every single sin that you were going to commit and that I was going to commit, and He knew how horrible they were, and so He's never surprised. He doesn't learn anything new. And when God the Father poured out every single sin in human history on Jesus Christ on the cross, He poured out all of those horrible sins that we commit as well. Because He's not surprised or shocked, because He doesn't learn anything new, He was able to provide a perfect salvation. And that's what grace is all about. Now, in the same way, when we go back into the Old Testament and we look at at the Abrahamic covenant and God's relationship to Abraham, we see these same principles of grace exemplified. God called Abraham and said that through Abraham he would bring into being a new nation and that God unconditionally would bless all the nations through Abraham and through that particular nation. When Israel sinned at Mount Sinai and they had Aaron build the uh, golden calf and they had a debauchery and... um, Idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai, that did not end the promise. When Israel rebelled in the wilderness and continuously rejected the grace of God, that did not end the covenant. When Israel continuously got involved in idolatry during the time of the judges, that did not abrogate God's promises in the Abrahamic covenant. When Israel sacrificed their firstborn on the fiery altars of Molech, That did not end God's love for Israel or God's plan for Israel. When Jephthah, focusing on an individual, when Jephthah sacrificed his daughter on an altar and then immolated her as a burnt offering to God, God did not turn his back on Israel. God does not give up because we fail. That's what grace is all about. And that, more than anything else, is a message that comes through again and again and again in the book of Judges. Why doesn't God turn his back on us? Why doesn't God say, okay, I've had enough? Because God has made covenant promises. He's entered into a contractual agreement to do certain things based on who he is, not on who man is. The covenant is based on God, not man. The covenant with Israel. It's based on God's integrity, 
And it's not related to man's infidelity. It's based on God's work, not man's work. And that's the story of Samson. Remember, Israel for the sixth time has degenerated into idolatry. For the sixth time they have done evil in the sight of the Lord. For the sixth time God has punished them. But unlike the other six times, this time they have not cried out to God. This time they have not confessed their sin. This time they are continuing to assimilate with the Philistines. We have gone through this and we have seen that in the Judges we have this continuous cycle of disobedience, discipline, and then there is deliverance. But the deliverance in the other five cycles was always after Israel turned back to God. But Israel does not turn back to God and that's a key to understanding why Samson is treated differently in the text than the other five major judges in Judges. We've gone through the cycle where we have seen the deterioration from Othniel to Ehud to Deborah to Gideon to Jephthah, and now it's Samson. We are at the bottom of the apostasy pit in the history of Israel. But God is providing a solution and a deliverance even while we watch the depravity going on in Israel during the time of Samson. I have a chart on the overhead that shows the relationship between these judges. Jephthah is... a lives at the same time as Samson. Samson is born when Jephthah is about 25, so at the time Jephthah begins his, about the time he's beginning his judgeship and delivering the nation from the Ammonites is about the time that Samson is born at the beginning of chapter 13. Samson's born in 1123. Samuel, who is the final divine solution that's going to bring Israel to recovery because of his teaching of the Word, is born in 1115. So he's just seven years younger than Samson. So when we look at Samson in this chapter and we begin to see how really messed up and, and perverted Samson is, we see that just seven years younger than he is Samuel who is going to provide the deliverance. The Ammonite oppression has basically ended because of Jephthah's judgeship and the Philistine oppression is going to continue until the defeat at the Battle of Mizpah, but ultimately it doesn't end until David ends it in his kingship. And that's important to remember because the author of Judges gives us all kinds of subtle hints because he is writing at the time of David. Well, I don't have time to go into everything, but this, this book is just phenomenal. The guy who wrote Judges is incredible. He weaves in more literary uh, devices, iron, use of irony, use of word plays, paranomasias, use of allusions to future events in Israel's history during the time of the early monarchy when he wrote this. And the way he structures and crafts this piece of literature is phenomenal because he, is, he is, has a, a primary message, but he also wants to be, be reminding us, the reader, or the Jewish reader, of many other things that are going on while they read. The problem is we miss all of that reading it in the English because it's built into the Hebrew text. And unless you can read Hebrew, it just goes right past you because it's not even brought out in most English translations. And sometimes it's not, not even possible to do that. Now, when we look at what's going on with Samson... We have to ask the question, why is it that the people haven't cried out to God? Why is there no uh, turning to God? Why is there no confession of sin? For the first time, they are not being oppressed. Now, that's important for us to understand because when you look at the other cycles, it says that they were oppressed by the Midianites. They were oppressed by the Ammonites. They were oppressed by the Canaanites. They, all these other groups oppressed them and enslaved them. But the Philistines do not oppress and enslave them. And that is be, to understand that is to understand Philistine culture. It's often said, and I pointed this out when we got into this study initially, that, that the Philistines are the Greek sea peoples. But they aren't really the Greek sea peoples because the Greeks are descendants of, of uh, Noah's son, um, Japheth. And the Philistines, according to Genesis chapter 10, are descendants of Noah's son, Ham. Not through uh, one, one of Ham's son was Mitraim, who was the father of the Egyptians. 
and then it's through another son that the Philistines came. So the Philistines are like second cousins to the Egyptians. They are not Greeks, but they went through somewhat of a circuitous route to end up on the Mediterranean shore of Israel. And apparently from some passages in the scripture, it's, it's, uh, there's an indication that they were enslaved on the Isle of Crete for a while. So there they picked up some Greek culture, and then they end up on the Mediterranean coast uh, of, of Canaan. And there they had a, had a culture that was different. We see them during the time of Abraham that they had a king. Their form of, of government was a king. But by the time we get to the Philistines in, in Joshua and Judges, you have the five lords of the Philistines, a totally different kind of government. Back during the time of, of Abraham, the Philistines are positive to Abraham and positive to the Jews. But by the time of the Exodus, they're hostile to the Jews and they're anti-Semitic, and that continues to play its role in history. So something happened in between the time of the Philistines during Abraham and 600, 500, 600 years later by the time of the Judges. And that's important to keep in mind because it affects the dynamics of what's going on in their culture, and it's not too dissimilar from what's going on in our own culture today. Because during that period of time, there were these migrations of people out of the north and the northwest, commonly called the Greek Sea Peoples, but they weren't just Greek. They were just just various peoples. And they would uh, sail across the Mediterranean and establish colonies in Phoenicia and in Carthage over North Africa, as well as interacting with the ethnic Philistines on the coast of Canaan. And so as these Greek sea peoples came into contact with the Philistines, the Philistine culture just sort of assimilated or absorbed all these different cultures. So they became a melting pot, much like the United States. They became sort of an ethnic melting pot and became multicultural. And so what they did was, in their culture, instead of taking a stand with what their early religious system was, they just kept absorbing all the deities, all the ideas of all these different cultures. So the Philistines were into cultural absorption and not any sort of absolute. So they're governed by a relativistic thinking, which is the same kind of thinking governing Israel at this time, which is exemplified in the key verse of Judges that there was no king in the land, referring to God. They rejected God as the theocratic leader and monarch of Israel. There's no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the Jews just want to do whatever they want to do, and they've rejected divine absolutes. Once you take God out of the picture, something has to fill the vacuum left by removing God. And it's always man who tries to deify himself by becoming his own ultimate reference point and establishing his own values, his own absolutes, whatever they are. But they're relative because man is relative, and so they're constantly shifting. Well, the Philistines aren't oppressing Israel, and Israel is not in an antagonistic relationship to the Philistines. They just want to assimilate. They just want to live together, have peaceful coexistence, and we don't want to upset the apple cart and get involved in a war. Everybody loses if you get into a war. Crops are burned. People lose money. Their houses are destroyed. Lives are lost. Let's, Let's just peacefully coexist. And what's happening is a breakdown between the Jews who are to be God's unique people as a witness to the world, as the source of divine blessing to the nations, and it's the distinction between the Philistines and I mean between the Jews and the Philistines is breaking down. And so God's going to send his bull in the China closet into the situation in order to stir up trouble. As long as you have this uh, divine burr under the uh, Philistine saddle then the Philistines aren't going to be happy with the Jews, and we're going to just constantly try to create antagonism and warfare. And that's why Samson is a deliverer of a different kind. He just, he's a troublemaker. He's there to stir up antagonism between Israel, to keep them from being destroyed and assimilated by this sort of relativistic thinking that is typical of human viewpoint and typical of much paganism. But the problem with Samson is that Samson is as much a spiritual apostate as anybody else in Israel. He is a perfect microcosm of all the problems in Israel. He wants to assimilate too. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to hold a a distinction between his thinking 
and, and the thinking of the Philistines. He doesn't want to learn doctrine. He's negative to doctrine. He never apply, seems to apply truth at any point. We know he does from what Hebrews 11 says. But that's not what the writer of Judges is emphasizing in the life of Samson. What he's trying to bring out in the life of Samson is that Samson, like all the other leaders, is doing what is right in his own eyes. He is has succumbed to the same thinking that dominates that of everybody else in a Jewish culture. So now we come to, last time, we, or in the last few weeks, we looked at the birth of Samson and that it was unique and God set him apart to be a unique kind of deliverer marked by a unique birth and a unique vow. He's a Nazarite. And as part of that Nazarite vow, he was to do three things. And we have to keep these three things in mind when we read through Samson because the writer assumes that we know it and that we're going to spot all the problems. I mean, it's, 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 he's very subtle at some times. First thing, he couldn't drink wine or strong drink. Strong drink is, is barley beer at that time. So he couldn't drink wine or drink beer, but it went beyond that. According to the stipulations in Leviticus, he, couldn't, he could not only not drink wine, he couldn't drink e- even grape juice, he couldn't eat grapes, he couldn't eat the skin of grapes. He couldn't even touch a grapevine. Now, you have to keep that in mind. Second, he was not to touch a dead body, not to touch a carcass at all. He could have no contact at all with anything dead. Third, third, he was not to cut his hair. He was to just let his locks grow as long as they would grow because that was the outward visible sign to everybody that he was a Nazarite. Now, the unique thing about Samson is that normally a Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow. Somebody took it because they wanted to, and it was for a short period of time. But he is to be a Nazarite from birth. God imposed it on him, says, I'm choosing you to be a Nazarite. That reminds us of what? God calling out Abraham and saying, I'm choosing you. I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to bless all the nations through you. It's not up to your volition. It's up to my volition. Same thing with Samson. And if we keep that in mind, then some of these really bizarre things that happen in Samson's life will begin to make sense. Because what God is going to demonstrate is that even though Samson is this perverted, out-of-control, lust-oriented, crazy guy, God still is going to work with him because God is going to be faithful to his promise. He is picturing through Samson his unconditional faithfulness to Israel. He's going to be unconditionally faithful to his promise to deliver through, through Samson, just as he's going to be unconditionally faithful to Israel. And despite all of their failures, despite all of their sins, despite their relativism, their paganism, and their idolatry, God is not going to desert them. He is going to be faithful to them. So the message that runs through this whole section is a message of God's grace, that God's grace is not dependent on who we are or what we do. It's dependent on who he is and what Christ did on the cross. Now, when we get into this chapter, we have to understand what's going on here. The the events really begin at the end of chapter 13 and go to the end of chapter 15. In the way the original author crafted this section, it is an integral whole. All these events go together. That You can't disconnect them. The problem is, in teaching the passage or going through it, there's no way we can go through all the details in 14 and 15. Because one of the things that, that has to happen is that for any of us to appreciate what's going on in these chapters, we have to learn a lot about Israel. We have to bring out a lot of background because we just don't know these things. We're 2,000, 3,000 years or 2,500 years divorced from this time period. So we won't get through it all, but the writer intends for the original Jewish audience to be to work through it, read through it, and understand all of these things in, in one sitting. So, lest we are guilty of just yanking some stuff out of context, we need to have a good summary of what happens in these verses, because what begins to happen in chapter 13, verse 25 culminates, it sets in motion a whole series of events that fall like dominoes 
until you get to the last verse of chapter 15, which tells us, So he judged Israel twenty years in the days of the Philistines. Notice even in that it's a reminder that he didn't deliver them from the Philistines. So all of this begins in verse 25 of chapter 13 where we're told the spirit of Yahweh began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Now, here's a summary of what's going to happen. It's like a soap opera. Everything's interconnected. It's, if, you, if you miss any of this, you're, you're, you're going to miss out on what the Holy Spirit has for us in these two chapters. The spirit of the Lord began to stir up Samson to action at the end of chapter 13, but Samson rather than responding with doctrine, takes his own action. We see him exhibiting in his life the extremes of Israel's relativism. So Samson goes over to the neighboring village of Timnah, where he gets the hots for this Philistine babe, and immediately he comes running home to mom and dad and says, Hey, you've got to go over there and get this woman for me. I've just got to have her for my wife. I just won't be happy. I'm just going to be miserable. Let's go get her. And they try to dissuade him, but they're unsuccessful. So on their way over there, Mom, Dad, and Samson are taking this six-mile walk to the next village. Apparently, Samson gets separated from his parents. And at that time, which ought to tell us that maybe God's working behind the scenes, at that time he is attacked by a lion. He kills the lion, but he doesn't tell his parents. Because the writer informs us that he doesn't tell his parents, it tells us his parents weren't with him. So they must have gotten separated along the way. Sometime later, a week or two later, he returns that way on his way to visit his fiancée. And he goes by the lion, and there he discovers a swarm of bees has inhabited the lion, and there is a load of honey there. So he takes some out and takes it to his parents, but doesn't tell them where it came from. Then Samson goes back to... um, throw a bachelor party for the men of the town, for the men in in Timnah. And in order to protect themselves from this strong man, who apparently already must have a reputation, otherwise it wouldn't explain their actions, in order to protect themselves and keep him under control if he gets a little too drunk, they bring in 30 bodyguards to just uh, uh, monitor the uh, situation. So we've got 30 bouncers there to take care of Samson at his bachelor party. And in that situation, he poses a riddle to these guys. And he thinks it's a riddle that they'll never figure out, and they wouldn't because it's a loaded riddle. And this is typical of that time in history for people to... It was the age of riddles at that time and throughout the ancient world. And there's a bet on whether or not they can uh, satisfy the riddle or solve the riddle. And at stake was a set of new clothes for every one of them. If... uh, if he wins, they'll give him 30, 30 new suits. And if, if uh, they win, he'll have to give each one of them 30 new suits. Well, they can't figure it out, so they decide to make an end run. And they go to his girlfriend, and they threaten her, intimidate her, and uh, tell her that she has to find out the answer to the riddle. So she cries on his shoulder, and we find out that he has absolute weakness for women at this point, And he just can't say no, and finally he gives it up, and he tells her the answer. Well, she runs and betrays him to these uh, Philistines and so they come back and answer the riddle and now he's got to give them 30 new suits well he doesn't have that kind of money so he decides well you suits will do just as well so he goes over to the next town and he kills 30 Philistines and takes their suits and brings them back to give these these uh, 30 bouncers to uh, satisfy the um, satisfy the bet now you have to understand that because he went to the town because he killed a lion on the way and because the lion was a carcass and the lion had a swarm of bees in there, that that's the basis for the riddle. And that basis for the riddle now is the basis for his uh, killing the 30 Philistines. And now they get the Philistines get mad because he's killed 30 Philistines. And so they are going to, um, they are going to assault his wife and her father. And... Uh, and a temper t- after all of this, as a temper tantrum, he had left, and he goes left his wife and goes home, and sh- so she's then given to his best man. Well, after he got over his anger, he decided to go back to see her, only to discover that his father-in-law had said, well, you never consummated the union, so I gave her to your best man, and they're married, and you can't see her. So he has another little temper tantrum and wants to seek revenge, 
And so he um, goes out and he catches 300 foxes. Now, just think about what would, that would entail for a little bit. He catches 300 foxes, ties them up, tail to tail, puts a torch between their tails. That must have been quite a feat. And sends them through the Philistine grain fields, burning up their grain, their vineyards, and olive groves. Keep that in mind. Those are three important things to understand in the history of Israel. They burn up their grain, vineyards, and olive groves. The Philistines retaliate by setting fire to his wife and her father. See, it's revenge. It's constantly back and forth. He's setting all these things in motion just because he killed the lion, just because he lusted for the woman. See, it's all interconnected. Then Samson retaliates again and kills a vast number of Philistines. We don't know how many. And heads out to the wilderness of Judah to hide out and rest. But the Philistines put together an army and they're in hot pursuit. And they follow him into the wilderness of Judah. And the Judahites now have had their territory invaded by this Philistine army, and they're all upset. And rather than defend their freedoms, they say, we don't want a war. They're the ultimate pacifists. And so they go, they put together 3,000 men to arrest Samson and turn him over to the enemy. Samson lets them tie him up. But when they get him to the Philistines, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and he breaks his bonds, and he smites, I love the phrase, smites them hip and thigh, and he kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. After that, he's exhausted. He's overcome with thirst. And he cries out to the Lord, who miraculously gives him water. He revives, and then we're told that he judged Israel for 20 years. That's All these events in these two chapters all follow one cause upon another, starting with his lust for this woman. So if we're going to understand... All these dynamics, we've got the whole picture now, we've got the overview. Let's look at some of the details. Verse, thir- verse 25 of chapter 13. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Now we have to look at this and, and answer a couple of questions about the relationship of the Spirit of the Lord to Samson, because it makes it sound, remember there's no chapter divisions in the original, there's no verse divisions, it just says the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah one of the daughters of the Philistines and subtext is he lusted after her, so it sounds like the Spirit of the Lord caused that well let's go back and understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament just briefly The doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit was given to specific people in terms of their administrative, governmental, or uh, ceremonial function inside of the nation Israel. It was not part of their spiritual life. It was the, the giving of the Holy Spirit was to certain prophets for the writing of Scripture. It was to kings for the leading of the nation. It was to judges for victory in battle. It was to the craftsmen in the tabernacle and temple for building and constructing the furniture in the temple. But it didn't have anything to do with the individual spiritual life of the people in Israel. And you just look at judges and time and time again we see Gideon, we see Jephthah, we see Samson where the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them and then they commit these horrible, perverse acts. Well, it doesn't have anything to do with the Spirit of the Lord's ministry there because that's not the function of the Spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament. But the Spirit of the Lord is going to stir him up. Now, when the Spirit of the Lord stirs him up, Samson's got an option. He's got volition. He can either respond to this in a biblically oriented way, applying divine viewpoint and Bible doctrine, or he can react according to his sin nature. And we all know what he does. He reacts and does what he wants in his sin nature. He doesn't respond to the movement of the Holy Spirit in a biblical way. He does it in an unorthodox way and in, an, in a wrong way. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. And here we have a, what ought to be a familiar word. It is the Hebrew word pa'am. And we ran across it on Wednesday night two or three weeks ago in our study of, of Daniel. In Daniel 2.1 we're told that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and his soul was stirred within him. It's that same word. It pictures a storm. It's the the perfect storm, a tempest, a hurricane out on the ocean. And 
And that's what it, it, it indicates. And so there's a, a violent tempest inside of Samson that's moving him to action. He just has to go do something. But the problem is, with no doctrine in the soul, he can't make a right choice in terms of, of, of application. Now, the writer doesn't make an issue out of Samson's apostasy yet because what he's doing is very subtly he's, make, he's going to tell us what happened and for us to draw our own conclusion that Samson never learned anything from his parents. And we scratch our heads and we say, I wonder why. And then we go back and look at the last chapter and we realize that, that his father Manoah really didn't know any doctrine either. So Manoah probably didn't teach him anything. And so he didn't learn anything. But, but then we look at Samson's character. And even if Manoah did teach him something, and he might have, Samson was in negative volition and he didn't care. See, see, one thing you need to understand is parents, you can do everything right and your kids still have volition and they can make all the bad decisions and it's not your fault. But then you have to have the objectivity to look at yourself and say, well, maybe it was my fault. If you're teaching doctrine to your kids and it's your responsibility as parents to teach doctrine to your kids, it's not the responsibility of the Sunday school teachers. It's not my responsibility. It's your responsibility as parents in the home to be teaching, modeling, communicating doctrine to your kids day in and day out, asking questions, finding out what they're learning at school, uh, interacting with what they're being taught at school from a divine viewpoint framework, helping them understand how to think and how to interact because they're living in Satan's world. They're living in a culture that is dominated by paganism and human viewpoint. And the only place they're going to learn how to exercise discernment and how to make the right decisions in that kind of environment is from you. And that's your job. Sunday school teachers are important, but they're secondary. It's not their responsibility to raise your kids. Incidentally, it's not even the responsibility of the public school teachers to raise your kids. That's your responsibility. It's not their job to teach them manners and teach them discipline. It's your job to teach your kids discipline and to teach your kids manners. So we don't know. The text doesn't tell us whether Samson's parents taught him or not. But, what, but we do know what his response was. He is negative to doctrine, and that is clear from everything that happened. So the Spirit of the Lord stirs him up. But in negative volition, he decides that he's going to satisfy this movement in his soul his own way. And he gets into uh, a, a consistent lust pattern. But the other thing we learned here that's really exciting because we always have trouble sometimes understanding the relationship of the sovereignty of God and human freedom is that what we see here is Jesus Christ controls history. And whether Samson is positive or negative, God is still going to bring about his purposes in the history of Israel. He's not going to violate Samson's volition. But even when Samson is negative, God's still going to use that to bring about his purposes. And if Samson were positive, he would use that. The difference is that Samson's either going to go through life under cursing or under blessing, but God's still going to work out his plan and purposes and program because it's never creaturely dependent. His plan and purposes are not dependent upon us. So the Spirit of the Lord moves him. He operates negatively, but God's still going to stir up trouble and use Samson's negative volition to bring about the, dis, uh, the, the break and the war between the Philistines and the Jews. He allows Samson to be negative, and that's part of the doctrine of permissive will. Now we see Samson's lust in the first couple of verses in verse one, we read, Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Notice that. Don't, don't you just... Mothers. Doesn't this just make your heart warm looking for a child that responds like this to you? Come home. Do this. You know, lack of gratitude, self-centered, self-oriented, rude. Uh, maybe they spoiled him. I don't know. But he obviously has a very arrogant attitude towards everything in life. And so he wants a Philistine wife. And this is a violation of the Mosaic Law teaching on intermarriage with Canaanites. So we're going to stop for a moment and look at the doctrine of intermarriage. The doctrine of intermarriage according to the Scriptures. Point number one, in the Old Testament, well, first of all, before we get into this, we need to have a geography lesson. Samson went down to Timnah. 
this is important to understand a little background here. Here's a map up on the overhead to give you an orientation to Israel as a whole. This is Israel in the north where you have the tribes of Asher, Dan, and then the Transjordan of Manasseh. Here is the Sea of Galilee. Then you have this, the Jordan River flowing down into the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea. And down here in the south is the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, and this is early Dan. And here is Zorah and Timnah. This is the area where we're talking about, so we're going to zoom in on it a little bit. And we see Zorah right here on the downslope of, uh, of, the, of the hill country, on the western slope in the valley of the Sorek River. Over to the um, west, about 15 to 20 miles, we have the cities of the Philistines. Now we're going to zoom in a little more. And here we see the boundary line, the shaded area here is the boundary line, rough boundary line, between Israel and the Philistines. Zorah is on the Jewish side. Timnah is six miles away. Just to orient you, that's from here to Jewett City. So Samson's just got to walk over to Jewett City. Nice little hike, and that ought to work up his appetite a little bit. And that's where he's going to meet this girl. So he goes from Zorah here, and the town where they lived in Mahanadan is between Eshtaol and Zorah. So he just has to walk about five, six miles to get to Timnah. Here's another zoom looking at this. All, everything here takes place generally in this area until we get into chapter 15. So it's all within a five-mile area. All along the Sorek River here. Now, the doctrine of intermarriage. Point one, in the Old Testament, intermarriage with a Gentile was forbidden to a Jew. Intermarriage to a Gentile was forbidden to a Jew. They were not supposed to marry a non-Jew. According to Deuteronomy 7, verse 3 and 4, which reads, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Notice verse 4 gives the reason for verse 3. Verse 4 says the reason they're not to intermarry is because they will be entering into a partnership with pagans who will lead them astray. Point number 2. The only exception was if the Gentile was a believer. There is an exception. That's what the book of Ruth is all about. Ruth was a Moabitess. And she marries Boaz, who's a Jew. And their grandson is going to be David. And Ruth is one of two Gentile women. The other is Rahab the harlot. Wouldn't you like to go through history known as you know, Rahab the hooker? But Rahab is a Gentile and Ruth is a Gentile. But both are positive to doctrine. Both are believers. And therefore, that intermarriage is fine. Intermarriage is not based on religion, but on spiritual relationship to God. Point number three, here's the principle. Intermarriage with an unbeliever would involve a Jew becoming a partner with a pagan who would then influence them, him or her, and lead them into apostasy. This always happens. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, you get involved, if you're dating, you get involved with an unbeliever, and you're going to be led in, into apostasy. Don't ever let your kids buy into the idea of missionary dating. You know what missionary dating is. Well, I like that person so much, and, and I'm just gonna, I'll be a good example to them, and I'll communicate the gospel to them, and I'll win them to the Lord. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, what happens is you get into apostasy, and if all of a sudden the flame of passion ignites and you get married, then things really go from bad to worse. And I have seen horror stories over the years, and I have watched one decent believer after another just absolutely get pulled away from any doctrine or church because the spiritual conflict is so great that they just give up, bail out, and next thing you know, they're in full-blown apostasy, and you can't tell any difference between them and the unbeliever they're married to. 
Or either that or they're just, if they do try to maintain their relationship to the Lord, it is a major battle day in and day out. And the most fundamental part of their life can never be shared with their partner. And I have never understood that in my life, how people can, be married, can, can date for two or three years, come to the pastor and say, well, I want to get married next month, will you do the wedding? And you say, well, are you both believers? Well, you know, no, the, other, the guy's not a believer, the gal's not a believer. Well, have, or, or, well, gee, I don't know. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Was well, the other person a believer? Well, I don't know. What have you been talking about for two or three years? You ever talk about anything substantive or you just watch movies? You know, it's amazing what people don't talk about when they're dating. You know, one of the best things you can do is give them a couple of tapes from here before you ever go out on a date. And if they don't react, then you know that, hey, you, you may have a winner here. But if they react, well, you just save yourself a lot of time and trouble. And that happens. So don't get deceived by the concept of missionary dating. Point number four. The prohibition was not based on race. It's not a racial prohibition. It's not based on culture. It's not based on any other human factor. They weren't told not to intermarry with the Gentiles because Gentiles were going to pervert them spiritually. The issue is doctrine. The issue is what does the other person think about Jesus Christ? First of all, are they saved? Secondly, are they positive to doctrine and spiritual growth? If the answer to either one of those questions is negative, then you need to teach your kids, or if you're single, you need to run as far and as fast as you possibly can. Because if you don't, you never know the traps that lurk in your own soul for romance. This isn't a prohibition to intermarriage racially. Remember, Moses had an Ethiopian wife. Boaz married a Moabitess. That was interracial marriage. So racial or interracial marriage is not wrong in itself. The issue is spirituality. Point number five, later on the Pharisees made this prohibition racial. That came in under legalism. The Pharisees made it racial because they ignored the second verse. The second verse said the reason you don't marry a Gentile is because they're going to lead you into apostasy. But if the Gentile's a believer and has come into Judaism, as it was practiced then, doctrinally correct in the Old Testament, come under the Mosaic Law as a proselyte, then it was okay. So the Pharisees made the prohibition racial because they ignored the spiritual impact of Deuteronomy 7.4. Point number six. In the New Testament, the principle holds true. It continues. Remember the principle, anything that is not restated in the New Testament ends. Anything that is not restated in the New Testament ends. So this principle continues. It's restated in the New Testament. That believers are not to marry unbelievers or enter into close partnership with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The mandate is do not be bound together and it is the uh, present deponent. That means it's a passive form that has an active meaning. It's a present deponent imperative of genomai, meaning do not become, plus the present active participle of Heterozogeo. And heterozogeo means to be bound together. It means to be matched up. It means to be joined or united. And it's a good picture of marriage. It's also a picture of other types of binding together, the relationships that you can enter into with unbelievers. It says, do not be bound together because there's no basis for that relationship, period. What fellowship has light with darkness? You are a child of light, a child of the kingdom, and they're not. So how can there be a relationship with any depth to it? Point number seven, you parents need to drill this into your kids day in, day out, over and over again, and the earlier the better, that you're just not going to have close friends, close relationships 
with people who are unbelievers, and the reason is based on 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You are the watchman at the gate, at least until they hit puberty. If you haven't started it till then, boy, you're going to have just a lot of fun when they're in adolescence. But always remember, even if you do everything right, they have their own volition. And I've seen this happen. I, I, one of my best friends, the three oldest kids, were all great, all positive. I mean, they, these were like model children. The youngest daughter came along. Man, she was like the daughter from the pit of hell. You know, she made the exorcist kid look like, uh, look like something you wanted. To my knowledge, parents didn't do anything different. Same environment. What made the difference was volition. Well, back to Samson. We learned some things here about Samson's character as he comes in and tells his parents he's got to have this woman over in Timnah. That he's willful, he's disobedient to the Mosaic Law, he doesn't care, he's ignoring the Mosaic Law stipulation that he not marry a Gentile. He's disrespectful of his parents, he doesn't show manners, he doesn't ask them, he doesn't say, well, what do you think? He just tells them what to do. And we see that he's a man who's getting rather wild and he just does whatever he wants to do. In short, he's acting like everybody else in Israel at this time in history. He does what is right in his own eyes. Now we come to verse 3. This begins to get us into some fun stuff. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? See, they understand a little doctrine. When they use the word uncircumcised, that immediately brings to bear Doctrine related to the Abrahamic covenant. Because the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of their being a Jew, is circumcision. And immediately they say, look, these guys are uncircumcised. What they're saying is they're pagan. They're not under the covenant. You're under the covenant. This is a spiritual issue. You need to find a woman who is spiritually right. And he says, I don't care. Get her for me. She looks good to me. You know, my, my hormones are raging. So I want to satisfy that, and I don't care anything about doctrine or care what you want or anything else. And they cave in. Okay, okay, well, you're big and strong, and we know God's working in your life, so it must be okay. So they don't seem to be real bright at this particular point. They just cave in, and off they go. And they're ignorant, verse 4, of what God is doing. Now, this is an interesting and can be a puzzling statement for some people. In verse 4, it says, However... His father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. Now, this is permissive will. Remember, God's moving him. He can choose positive or negative, apply doctrine to the situation, or not apply doctrine to the situation. And he doesn't apply doctrine, but even so, God is still working. It's the principle in Romans 8.28. In Romans 8.28, we're told that all things work together for good to them who love God. Now, that tells us, primarily it's directed towards a maturing believer to those who love God. But the emphasis in the verse is that God works even through suffering and discipline and negative volition. He's the one orchestrating everything and bringing it about, and He's going to bring about the ultimate good. So, it's of the Lord because He's going to create, He's seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now, God is goal-oriented at this point. See, what God's plan is, is to cause trouble with the Philistines. Now, he could have done it another way if Samson had been positive to doctrine and applying the truth. But Samson's negative, so he doesn't do it that way. He uses Samson's negative volition to stir up trouble with the Philistines. And then we're told a little editorial comment by the author. Now, he's saying, now remember... At that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. This tells us that this must have been written during the time of David's monarchy because it seems to be written at a time when the Philistines were not ruling over Israel. And so he says, now, this was a time when the Philistines were ruling over Israel. And then we come to verse 5. Interesting verse. And it just it, it, this will float right past most of you. It floated past me for a long time yesterday. I'm writing on my notes and I went... 
Wow. I didn't even, I don't know how many times I've read this chapter and I never saw this. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. The vineyards of Timnah. Now, why is that important? Remember the first stipulation? You know, now, the writer of Judges could have just said he came, they came as far as Timnah. Or they came to the outskirts of the city. They came to the gates of the city. There's all kinds of ways the writer could have said this. And it wouldn't have made any kind of spiritual point. We just told us that he's going to a location. But he doesn't want us to pay attention to the fact that he's just going to a location because he wants us to pay attention to where he's going and his spiritual implications. He's going to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, that's important because as a Nazarite, Samson wasn't to have anything to do. He wasn't to come into any proximity with wine, with grape juice, with the seed of the grape, with, with uh, the grapevine, with the skin of the grape, with anything. He was, what's he doing in the vineyards of Timnah as a Nazarite? Right away, we're told this guy's in spiritual apostasy. He is so far in rebellion, he doesn't care where he is, and he's really thumbing his nose at God. But who's moving him? See, this is grace. Samson is failing by the numbers. And God doesn't desert him. The message to Israel is, you're failing by the numbers. I'm not deserting you. I made a promise in the Mosaic Covenant. I made promises in the, uh, I mean, in the Abrahamic Covenant. And I'm not going to go back on my word. That's grace. Grace means it's not up to us. It's up to God. It's not based on our behavior. It's based on God's behavior. And so Samson ends up, first violation in this section of his Nazarite vow. And then we have the episode with the lion. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. Now, we know that mom and dad have gone on ahead. Maybe he turned aside. Maybe he had to check out the trees and nature call or whatever it was. But at that particular instant, a lion charges him. Now, that's him. we ought to be thinking now, the lion attacks him. At the moment, he's not with his parents. Now, when you're walking six miles, that takes maybe an hour, maybe an hour and 20 minutes, maybe an hour and a half. So it's not a long time period. It's not like a day long, when, like when Jesus is going with, as a young boy, going with his parents from Jerusalem back home to Nazareth, and, and they're wondering where is he in the caravan. It's not that kind of, I mean, just the three of them. So it's not too, too difficult for them to, I mean, it's, it's a little difficult for them to get separated significantly along the way. So, so he's separated, and, and, and this event must have taken place real rapidly. This lion charges him. And at that point, the Spirit of Yahweh comes upon him mightily. And the implication is he has no fear. I mean, this lion charges him. There's no fear. He's in control. He's relaxed. He knows he's going to take out this lion. And he just grabs that lion's hind legs and rips him apart, just like you're ripping apart a wishbone in a, from a turkey or a chicken. And he just tears the lion in two and kills him. But he doesn't tell his parents. Now, something's funny going on here because if, if this were you, one of the first things you'd be doing is, Hey, Mom, Dad, guess what just happened? You wouldn't believe what I did to that lion. Now, there's something else that you ought to be thinking about, biblically. At the, back in verse 5, we're, we're, or verse 4, we're told this little editorial comment. This was at the time when the when the Philistines ruled. Implication, I'm writing when David is the king. Now, what other lions do we know about in Scripture? We know about the fact that when David is getting ready to do battle with who? Goliath the Philistine. Saul says, well, what are your credentials? He said, well, whenever the lion and the bear would try to take away the sheep from the flock, I would kill them. I would grab the lion by his beard and I would kill him. So, Samson's not the only lion killer. And so the, one of these subtexts that's going on in this is there's a subtle contrast between Samson and his willfulness. He kills the lion, but he can't defeat the Philistines. And David, who's following the Lord, who also kills lions, but does deliver the people. And if you were living at the time of David, that would automatically come to your mind. So he tears up. Kills the lion, but he doesn't tell his father and mother what he had done. And then in verse 8, when he returned later to take her, to take her, go back to the wife, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So in between, they, they reach the marriage contract. He goes home, then comes back, and he finds this swarm of bees and honey in the body of the lion. 
Now, there's a lot going on here because the word swarm here isn't the normal swarm, normal word for a beehive or swarm. It's the Hebrew word edah, which means a congregation, an assembly of people. It's talking about honey coming out of a dead carcass. Now, wait a minute. How many of y'all have ever seen honey, uh, a honeycomb, a beehive in a tree? What's the environment like? It's dead, it's dry, or maybe it's alive, but it's dry. It's a, it's a good environment. Do you normally find beehives in animal carcasses? Why not? Because they're wet, they're gaseous, they're, they're decomposing, they're, they're, they're not valid sites for, for a beehive. So once again, we're going, uh-oh, God's doing something here, because this is not normal to find a beehive in a, in a carcass, number one. Number two, it's an assembly. What's, what, what The writer is making a point here, and that is that, and what's found there is honey. Now, what does honey have to do with in the Old Testament? In Exodus 3.8, God said, So I have come down to deliver them, the Jews, from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. The Canaanites are spiritually dead. They are the carcass. And out of the carcass, God's going to give honey and life to Israel. Once again, it's another symbol of grace. God brings life where there's death. He's going to bring blessing where there is death and depravity. And also, Deuteronomy 8, it's described as a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. All of that's going to belong to Israel, but it's not theirs now. They're not experiencing the blessing of God because they're assimilating with the Philistines. And so, the symbolism here is simply to remind us of what God is going to do with Israel, bringing blessing where there's death. Now, there was somebody not long ago, I heard, who taught this passage that somehow the lion is a symbol of the lion of Judah, and this is a picture of the church. And that, that's what's called allegory. See, when there are symbols in the Scripture and symbolism in the Scripture, but you have to inter- know how to interpret it. You have to let the Old Testament theology provide your boundaries. You can't just contemplate your navel and grab something out of thin air because it sounds good. And I'm not doing that. You're looking at how is honey used? How are these words used in the Old Testament? Are they used in a representative manner to teach doctrine? It's not negating the literal historical event, but it is saying that the writer uses that historical event not only to tell you what happened, but because this he's using that event to emphasize something. And what he's emphasizing is that it is God has not deserted Israel. He's still got a plan to provide blessing and prosperity, honey, in this land, but they have to get rid of the Philistines and the Canaanites. And so the whole message here is a message of grace, that God is not deserting Israel despite their apostasy. God's not deserting Samson despite his apostasy. And God doesn't ever desert us. He will never leave us or forsake us, no matter how much we fail, no matter how horrible our sins might be. God is the God who paid the, had the penalty paid for in full by Jesus Christ on the cross so that our spiritual life, our salvation, is never, ever based on who we are and what we do. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word and to understand grace. That grace means un- truly means unmerited favor. It is never based on who we are or what we do, but on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. Salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone here this morning uncertain of their eternal life, unsure of their salvation, this is an opportunity to make that sure and certain, to put their faith alone in Christ alone. You can do that right now, right where, you're, right where you sit. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to even pray. God knows whom you are trusting for salvation. And the issue is to trust Jesus Christ as the one who died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, trusting Him that He paid the penalty. Now, Father, as we close in prayer, we pray that we would be challenged by the things we learned, that we would be encouraged as we understand the depths of your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.